welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to another Arbitral Insights. I am Andrew Tetley. I'm a partner in the Paris office of Reed Smith. And I have the pleasure today of speaking with uh, Alana Parapalinska, who is a prominent practitioner in arbitral space in the Ukrainian region uh, and more widely. And it's my pleasure to have her here to speak to us today on matters of arbitration uh, and the Ukraine. Welcome to our podcast, Alana. Thank you, Andrew, for this introduction and good afternoon or good morning or good evening. There'll be, there'll be, there'll be mornings, evenings and afternoons when they get to listen to this. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's kick off with, uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, I think, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about yourself, your background and how you, you become the, this, this, this sort of person in, in the Ukrainian space, at least in arbitration, in this well-known position that you now are and, and give us a little insight on how, how you started and how you got there. So I think it's a mix of some good luck and hard working. So I'm Ukrainian arbitration practitioner. I was born in Ukraine. I studied in Ukraine and during my university study, so I studied international law in international law school of the Ukrainian university named after Shevchenko. And in my student years, I decided to participate in this mode competition. So I have discovered the world of international arbitration. I did not manage to go to the oral rounds, but... Even uh, this written uh, stage uh, was enough for me to decide it's, it's really interesting and that I would like to do this in my professional life. I got my first job in, again, Ukrainian uh, law firm, one of the biggest at that time. And this law firm was quite active in arbitration practice, which was rare at the time. This was like 20 years ago. And so I had possibility to practice arbitration almost from my student years because I combined work and uh, studies. And then uh, I was quite active in different activities and I wanted to improve arbitration landscape in Ukraine. So I was involved in various activities and tried to push them, to drive them. And uh, that is how in one day I became president of the Ukrainian Arbitration Association. I was one of the founding members of this association and worked several years as a board member. And in terms of my career, so I changed several law firms, all of them Ukrainians, and finally I joined Integritis six years ago, almost seven years ago, as a partner head of arbitration. So four years ago, I was also invited to, to join ICC court as a court member. I was appointed by the president of uh, the court. So that's a, I, I have also other roles, but it would be too long <laughs> to discuss them, you know. Well, I, I must say one of the, I mean, obviously one of the interesting roles that you've occupied is in the Ukrainian Arbitration Association. And you, you, you said that, uh, you know, you, you were a founding member and that that was 
that you wanted to do that to sort of improve the the Ukrainian, if I can call it, arbitral scene. But tell us a little bit about that. How is arbitration received in the Ukraine? How's the, the commercial actors in the in the Ukraine? Uh, how do they see it? Are they involved? Are they behind it? And how has it changed in your twenty years since you've since you've been doing this? So Ukraine has quite a long history or track record, at least, in international arbitration, because it was one of the signatories of the New York Convention and European Convention on International Commercial Arbitration, I mean, separately from the USSR. So Ukraine signed as a separate signatory, which was quite rare at the time. However, real development of international arbitration in Ukraine started only after Ukraine got independence in 1991. And just several months after that, Ukraine launched its International Commercial Arbitration Court at the Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. So this institution is the biggest in Ukraine, administering international cases, and it will celebrate its anniversary just in several weeks. So it was created 30 years ago. And uh, this institution is quite successful and quite busy. So in average, it has about uh, three to 400 international cases per year. In 1994, Ukraine adopted its law on international commercial arbitration, which was based on the ancestral model law. I mean, its first edition, and it remained almost untouched since then. So with very small additional provisions or amendments, including those from the latest version of the Antrotral Model Law. In addition, Ukraine is a party to more than 70 BITs. It is party to the Washington Convention, to the ECT. So it has a quite good and solid legal framework. In terms of number of cases, so in general, Ukraine generates roughly 500 international cases per year. I mean, not only for this Ukrainian institution, but globally. Ukraine is one of the most popular respondent states in investment treaty arbitration. I mean, it is in top 10 respondent states. But what is also interesting, Ukraine has voluntarily complied with the majority of the award against it and paid uh, respective amounts in favor of investors. In terms of the court practice, Again, we had different times in this 30 years period, but according to the survey conducted by Ukrainian Arbitration Association, we have an open court register for the last 15 years, so we were able to identify the cases related to arbitration and look at the court practice and enforcement proceedings. And uh, the results were quite uh, astonishing in a good sense because Ukrainian courts enforced around 90% of international arbitral awards, which is a good figure. And if we look at the setting aside statistics, this is less than 1%. So again, this is like one award per year, which is quite good, I think, even for very arbitration-friendly jurisdictions. So that is what we had. And if we turn to what Ukrainian Arbitration Association has contributed here to, to this, we participated and contributed to the working group elaborating new procedural provisions in support of arbitration, so for enforcement purposes, for instance. And the current provisions of our civil procedure code related to enforcement are 80% drafted by the Ukrainian Arbitration Association. And we are quite proud of it. 
Thank you for that. That gives a very good snapshot. And it's always interesting to hear of the experiences direct from those who are, you know, in the thick of them in these countries. And I, I had occasion to talk to people from, you know, countries that sometimes you think might not be very good advocates or honorers of arbitral process and awards, and you can be surprised. So I, I wonder, I suppose, if we, if we just did a snapshot in time now, because of course, we're doing this podcast in a moment in time where the Ukraine in all walks of life and all, all its people are facing very difficult and trying times because of the conflict with Russia. But, you know, how do you see, how do you, maybe you're already seeing it, how do you see this impacting on arbitral process? And I've probably got a few other subsequent questions I could ask, but just let me open, I'll just have an open question like that. And how is it, or how do you think it's going to affect matters? You know, it's crystal ball gazing and it's very difficult, but uh, if you could share what your experience is, you know, I suppose today and, and how you see it going forward. Yes, thank you. I probably should start with some general impact of the war on our lives, yeah, because of course it was a shock, uh, followed by some immediate actions to ensure safety of our families and our close ones, yeah, and this applies, I mean, to every business, including arbitration industry in Ukraine. So first weeks after the Russian invasion, after the beginning of the Russian invasion, were a bit of a chaos. And uh, I think the majority of businesses were simply closed. And uh, arbitration institution in Ukraine was closed and the Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce was closed. So everything was closed because everyone was either fleeing or trying to figure out what to do because you go we were all lost absolutely we did not expect to to live and work in such conditions however after a couple of weeks we all settled somewhere either in some other parts of ukraine more safer zones or in some other countries and so we we continue working remotely more or less as we did during the COVID times. And thanks to COVID, we had our infrastructure ready for such type of work. And we had access to those documents, to each other, etc., etc. So we have learned to work in new conditions. With regard to arbitration infrastructure, so as I mentioned, the institution was closed and not only physically closed, the staff was not available as well. I also had a couple of hearings scheduled for the first week of March, that is like second week of the war. And these hearings did not happen because uh, neither council nor Ukrainian arbitrators nor parties nor institution were available to, to participate even remotely in those hearings. So they were later rescheduled to another date. And the proceedings were continued uh, after the institution like reopened its doors. Of course, there are some peculiarities of the current modus operandi of the institution. It's mostly online hearings and even paper delivery is a bit complicated. So it's possible it's just a bit different and it takes probably a bit more time. But I have already participated uh, in, in some hearings as arbitrator. I mean, in, in this Ukrainian institution. And my firm has participated in a hearing, I mean, as a council, as a party, just uh, a week ago. And uh, so it works. I mean, we are now 
working in um, arbitration proceedings more or less as it were before. Of course, some proceedings are suspended and uh, there is a good cause for that. You could imagine some subject matters of the disputes are now, you know, under the question whether they will survive this war or not. They could be damaged, that could be located in uh, occupied territories and their fate is unknown now because it might be stolen by Russians, for instance, or destroyed. Well, I don't know. There are so many uncertainties nowadays with regard to different assets, even immovable assets, which you normally do not expect to go <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, Because again, even the title to some real estate is now not something really secured, because if it's located on the occupied territories, you could easily lose it. And this, of course, has an impact uh, uh, for any dispute resolution. And if some proceedings, I mean, uh, launched uh, before the war are now suspended, uh, many claimants simply wait before launching any new cases, either in arbitration or in litigation, because the situation is very dynamic, because court system, for instance, does not work properly. Arbitration institution does work, and it's important because sometimes you have limitation period issues. Sometimes you need to, to file a claim within a certain deadline. But otherwise, parties are either waiting or trying to settle the existing disputes because of many, many other issues, including financial issues. You could imagine that many contracts have been disrupted by this war, and business in general and economy in general are. Uh, not in the best shape, and this has a kind of chain reaction financially and economically. At the same time, we think there could be a potential wave of investment treaty arbitration against Russian Federation with regard to the occupied territories. And the discussion now is whether our experience in Crimea disputes where Russia has also occupied annexed uh, Ukrainian territory, could now be used for these uh, recently occupied territories. Because, again, we have, uh, if we're talking about Ukrainian investors, we have the same BIT already, you know, interpreted uh, in Crimea cases in, in a new way. Of course, BITs were not created for similar situation. I don't think that anyone expected that now there could be any occupations or annexations of territories by one state against the other one. And uh, if you look uh, at this situation more broadly, so we now have not only occupied territories, we also have deoccupied territories because some territories were liberated by Ukraine during this war. And this complicates things even more because, again, the territory, the control over the territories is moving from one state to another and then back. And this creates a lot of legal issues, absolutely new legal issues not yet resolved on arbitration scene, I think, at least at our recent times. I mean, there seems to be large potential for fire and counter fire on this and 
certainly you, you can see that there are certain Russian entities lining up for international arbitration claims against the Ukraine for freezing Russian assets. And of course, the counterclaims back into Russia from Ukrainian entities whose property or rights or businesses have been destroyed. And then complicated, as you say, by the moving of the territories and the frontiers as to is this Russia or is this Ukraine? When you say the Crimea experience, so there's a sort of body of now decisions that have, that have come out of the Crimean occupation. How have those sort of affected the stakeholders? What's been the sort of outcomes of those? So when Crimea was next and some Ukrainian investors started considering investment treaty claims against Russian Federation based on Russia-Ukraine BIT, there is a notion of territory in the BIT. Ukraine considers it its Ukrainian territory. So how then Ukrainian investor could file a claim against Russia, stating that it's Russian territory? Because, uh, again, I should add that some Ukrainian claimants were state-owned entities. And uh, the interesting analysis was, and I think the quite creative and courageous approach of the arbitrators was not actually to analyze the, some international aspects of annexation at all. They've just uh, looked at this as a fact and Russia has helped immensely to prove that it has administrative control over this territory. It has included it into as one of the subjects of the Russian Federation. It has established its authorities, its currency, its laws there. So it made quite many steps to confirm that it has effective control over this territory and thus should be liable for what is happening on that territory irrespective, you know, of whether this happened legally or not. It's Russia for some purposes, but not for others. So for the purposes yeah. of investment disputes, it's, it's going to be Russian if you're Ukrainian. That is why this concept of control could be used somehow in, in, a, in another line of potential disputes, although, of course, the recent occupation is different from what happened with Crimea, and we have uh, military control over some territories with some elements of administrative control. Russia is trying to introduce its currency on some occupied territories to introduce Russian passports uh, to local population, etc., etc. So there are some, again, uh, state language, etc. There are some elements of effective control, but again, uh, whether the arbitral tribunal would be ready to interpret the BIT even more broadly. So this is, of course, uh, a question. So we will see, I could only <laughs> say to you, because nobody knows how this would develop. Yes, the BIT is not designed for international Absolutely. international war. So uh, I, I can well see those issues are going to be uh, interesting. You were talking about tribunals. How has the conflict affected the, the profession, the, the, the job of being an arbitrator? If you're Ukrainian and you're, you know, where are these, you know, these claims? Has it affected the, the, the sort of, you know, Ukrainians acting as arbitrators? How's that sort of played out or playing out? There were several interesting developments, not necessarily positive. 
Uh, first, I think the war has created conflict of interest, so to say, and opened the door to challenges of the Ukrainian arbitrators by Russian parties and vice versa. This happened even before the war, and I know the, about some successful challenges of Ukrainian arbitrators by Russian parties, not even state parties or state entity. After the start of the war, I think this risk of challenge will remain for decades. I mean, Ukrainian arbitrators will not participate in any disputes involving Russian parties and vice versa, because I am sure that parties of their council would plead that arbitrator is not impartial and has certain bias with regard to, to, the, to the Russian parties. So you're expecting a drop-off in appointments as an arbitrator? Uh, no, I don't think this would ever happen. I mean, even if it's Russian-Ukrainian disputes, I, I am afraid that uh, they would be problematic either for Russians or for Ukrainians to participate in that. And unfortunately, we will still have some Russian-Ukrainian disputes. So um, my expectation that Ukrainian arbitrators would be excluded for this type of work. With regard to other not-related-to-Russia cases, the problem with the current case law is that, as I mentioned, there are some many claimants prefer to wait now before going to arbitration. And this, of course, uh, has impact on the number of cases where potentially Ukrainian arbitrators could be appointed. So there are less cases involving Ukrainian parties and thus less cases where potential appointment of Ukrainian arbitrators could have place. At the same time, Ukrainian arbitrators, they, we have many experienced, talented lawyers, uh, hardworking lawyers, able to sit as arbitrators. And after the start of the Russian invasion in Ukrainian Arbitration Association, we decided to support Ukrainian arbitrators and launch initiative. So we started publishing profiles of the Ukrainian arbitrators in Facebook and LinkedIn to raise their visibility under the hashtag appoint Ukrainian arbitrator. The idea is first to bring attention to Ukrainian arbitrators, to their profiles, to increase their visibility, to increase their chances to get appointment, or even increase the chances to be included in some long or short list because they would not be traditionally considered as uh, usual suspects, you know. And again, we decided that it is important to explain to potential parties or councils that it's not risky to appoint a Ukrainian arbitrator because we still could work in and uh, could sit as arbitrators and functions properly. So, and this uh, initiative was uh, very well noticed and perceived by our foreign colleagues and Ukrainian colleagues. So, I think it was quite a good move. Well, look, everybody's, I say everybody, there's many people in the world who would like to support the Ukraine in, uh, in any way they, they can. So, that sounds like a great initiative. I suppose one of the other aspects of all of this is, and I wonder whether you're seeing this at all or whether this has changed, is as parties sort of decide on the seat of their arbitration. And, you know, because you described, I think you said 500, uh, if memory serves me right, cases of international arbitration dealt with by the, the Ukrainian body that deals with these things. And is that something, those are all presumably seated in, in, in Kiev or, or in Ukraine, or are they seated all, all over? And how, how do you think that's going to 
be affected by the conflict? So traditionally, the major part of Ukrainian cases is seated in Ukraine because the rules of our Ukrainian arbitration institution do not allow any other choice. <laughs> so it's by default seated in Kiev and Ukraine, and that's it. However, Ukraine has traditionally generated quite many disputes for other institutional institutions and for cases seated in London, uh, in Switzerland, in Sweden. Some cases are well-known, like Gazprom Gas cases, so traditionally seated in Stockholm. Uh, some cases are less known, but uh, traditionally the corporate disputes and uh, the disputes around arising out of some financial facilities go into London. And Ukraine has been one of the world's leading exporters of grain and uh, sunflower oil and uh, this generated traditionally quite a significant number of disputes going to GAFTA Fosfa again to London or to some other institutions or associations in commodity market like sugar, for instance, here. So Ukraine has contributed to many other jurisdictions in a number of disputes and was one of quite popular mostly respondents, if we're talking about Ukrainian parties, but sometimes and claimants as well. So sometimes uh, Ukrainian cases go to less known institutions, to some regional institutions, but in generally, so we are a big country and the default rule for Ukrainian business is to have an arbitration clause in an international contract because Ukraine does not have a good international tools to enforce court judgments. And that is why enforcing of arbitral awards based on the New York Convention is really a benefit. And Ukrainian parties for decades include arbitration clauses into their contracts. It sounds like the Ukraine is like to rival Russia in how many pieces of litigation it can produce for various markets, notably London. The Russians do keep the London arbitral community busy as well as the courts, that's for sure or at least historically. Well, look, that, Alana, we are unfortunately up against time on these podcasts, and I, I'm extremely grateful that you've taken time out to come and talk to us. But just before we close, just to take our minds away from the law and arbitration and matters of that like, I'm going to ask you this, which is what do you do to take your mind away from work and the troubles of life, etc., when you're not leading the charge, so to speak, on matters of arbitration in, in the Ukraine? How do you, how do you relax after, after a hard day's work? So I would start this part from saying that I returned home a few weeks ago. And, you know, this is an immense happiness to, to be at home after several months of being in other places. And even in the wartime, for me, it's quite relaxing to do some gardening. So my garden was without any care for a few months. So And uh, I have a lot of things to do. And this distracts me. And when I see the results, this is really, really good. Yeah. I think my mother's the same. And uh, I mean, the Ukraine is well known as the garden of the world in some ways. And so it's, it's nice to hear that it's practiced right down to the arbitral practitioners who, who also head up that area of business and, and economic activity. Well, look, Alana, look, thank you very much for your time. And as I said, we do we now run out of time, so I'll have to wrap it up. But I say thank you very, very much. Uh, and I look forward to speaking to you anyway uh, soon uh, outside of all the podcasts and keeping in touch. 
Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak about Ukraine. Thank you. Bye-bye. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.